You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're entitling this Christian Zionism is a War-Based Religion. And so we want to ask some questions here and make some comments on this. And it is pretty obvious from these two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, over the last 15 years, or actually you can look back to 1991, the first Gulf War that we went to war against Saddam Hussein, and then in the 90s about 500,000 Iraqi children were killed. And so this idea of just war, or I like to say, is it just another war, but a, a just war, according to many evangelical Christians, they have found ways to justify these wars by looking at the Bible. And we want to talk a little bit about that. And I think just as a little bit of a prologue and some examples, prior to going to war in 2003, there were a number of uh, evangelical Christians, including Richard Land of the Southern Baptist Convention, and people like Chuck Colson, D. James Kennedy, and Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, all signed this letter that was sent to George Bush about five months before the Gulf War, justifying any action against Iraq and Saddam Hussein as being just. And uh, you had people like Henry Blackaby, who said, quote, Those who oppose the war to liberate Iraq need to read God's word, unquote, Blackaby said. Quote, there is no question that the current war to liberate Iraq is a just war according to biblical standards, unquote. And so this was sort of a common thread through these arguments, the land letter. And then I want to talk about an incident in my own church, almost seven years actually after the The second Gulf War started in 2003. And, of course, here we hold these truths. We are a pro-life, pro-peace organization. And we've been conducting vigils since 2002, at least five months before the Gulf War, because we understood then that what evangelicals have been calling just wars were not just. There was no justification for these wars at all. So I'd like to have Craig and Chuck weigh in and give us some thoughts about this concept of just wars and how is it justified, I could say, in the theology. Why is the theology such that these kinds of actions can be justified? I'll start by saying that the term just war should properly be called justifying war because uh, there is no justification for anyone taking a life or entering into a war in the New Testament. 
There really isn't any justification in the Old Testament either, because we're not bound by that. That's not our guide. Jesus is our guide. And the tales of war that are carried out in the Old Testament are tales upon conquest. And that does not justify us going out and conquering people in order to get their land. In other words, the Israelites basically conquered the land that they took. And they did it in the name of God and they justified it because they said God gave them the right to take the land. We cannot carry this forward and say this gives us the right to take land. However, the evangelical group that normally takes the lead in justifying wars in the Middle East does it for a very good prejudiced reason. And that is that they have the scriptural bend that the current day state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And therefore, anything Israel does is justified. And if you look back at what was happening in Iraq, in uh, 1999 and 1998, the state of Israel was actually has always claimed that they own a parcel of land all the way from Egypt to uh, the Euphrates, Greater Israel or Oritz Israel. And Israel has never ceased to contend that they have the right to all that land. They just haven't acquired it yet. So Israel has always been ready to engage in a war against Iraq, Iran, or any of the countries in that triangle. And they've always been willing to support, and they do support today, powers that go in there and cause trouble, war, revolution in places like Syria, where uh, we're very actively involved in the war today. So this then rubs off on evangelical Christians who believe that Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, in that they think they should support Israel's acts no matter what they are. And this was basically at the root of Christian support for a bombing Saddam Hussein and the millions of people in Iraq who uh, were left homeless as a result of this and many killed. Well, I was thinking, you know, uh, one of our signs, of course, is no more wars for Israel. And that's really kind of obvious from the first Gulf War. That was a war for Israel. It also involved oil, but the Israelis had bombed a nuclear facility in the 80s there in Iraq. And yes. so the uh, United States was doing the dirty work for Israel to neutralize their arch enemy, Saddam Hussein. And there was a little publicized treaty to that effect where the Israelis said, we would love to be involved in this war against Iraq. But we will agree to stay out if you will go ahead and do a good job of it and really wipe him out. This was in the form of a treaty that was signed. And Israel did stay out so long as uh, as Iraq did not bomb Israel, as you may recall. And uh, there were a few missiles that were launched out of Iraq that did actually land in Israel territory without much damage. One thing uh, it always interests me is that the um, evangelicals are so quick to say that Israel has the right to defend herself. The nation of Israel has the right to defend herself. What about the, the Palestinian people that were there before the Israeli and the Jewish immigration to the land? They never seem to go back to the source of the problem. As we were talking about these just wars, they don't have all the information and then go off on partial information and come up to these erroneous conclusions. The facts are the indigenous people in the land of Palestine had a right to be there. They lived there for generations and generations back thousands of years. 
and then the Jewish Congress decides that they want a piece of this land, and we have the Herzls, and we have all this stuff, and they come and take the land, and somehow these indigenous people don't have any rights at all. And so, and then they wonder why there's conflict. And so, for me, we need to find out what is the source of the conflict, and why do we get into these messes, and you're exactly right, Chuck, it's in defense of Israel, and Israel is indefensible in why they took the land. Absolutely. So that is certainly the linchpin of what we would call premillennial dispensationalism, and that is a broad spectrum of beliefs about the end times. And, of course, Israel plays into their scenario, and they look at it as a literal state of Israel, whereas most traditional Christians believe that the modern state is just a secular apostate state, just like any other country around the world. One of the things I'd like to kind of expand on here is some of the justifications given for these just wars. I've attended a evangelical Bible church for 25 years, actually, and of course during that time I've learned a lot and my eyes have been open, thanks to Chuck, and we hold these truths. And so people are deceived on many issues, and I I guess I'll admit that I have been deceived a number of times. Well, we were in a, a Sunday school class for a year and a half with a man. He's a professor. His name is Dr. Wayne Grudem. He's written a book on systematic theology. And back in, I think, about 2010, the last year we were in the class, and I'll kind of explain what happened, uh, he wrote a book, Politics According to the Bible. And so his classes were tracking his book, and most of the things that up until the lesson on national defense lessons were, you know, I was pretty much in agreement. But when we got to the subject of national defense, the bottom line, uh, he had had the four different lessons, but the bottom line, he said, according to his analysis, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan He said, according to just war criteria gone over previously, and we'll talk a little bit about that, Iraq and Afghanistan wars were just wars. And so what did he mean by this? And so in his first lesson on this, number A of national defense, he went through the just war ethic, and he had an outline And so he had different arguments. And then he had Bible verses to back this up. And he points out that just war argues that a war is morally right or just when it meets certain criteria and is conducted within certain moral restrictions. So here's the criteria that he's given. One, just cause is the reason for going to war a morally right cause such as defense of a nation And he quotes Revelation 19.11, which says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Well, Chuck, why don't you offer a comment on that? This, again, is taking symbolic language from a book that is basically interpreted as a dream or a vision, and applying his own application of that, and basically this white horse is Jesus returning in the saddle 
with a sword, slaughtering everybody who was not a Christian. Uh, this is the direction of, of the revelations. And somehow he is contending because Jesus is coming back on a horse, swinging a sword and slaughtering people, that the wars are just, uh, as long as we're swinging a sword, slaughtering people, and they're the bad people. This is unlike anything else in Christian scripture. And I would contend that it's interpretation of a dream in very symbolic language. But we have somebody here who's much better qualified than me to interpret that chapter in Revelations. And Craig is a Bible study guy and has scriptural training, and I don't. So maybe we could get Craig to comment. Well, what's interesting about that, Chuck, let's, let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's say Jesus is really going to do that. He's really going to come back and he's going to separate the, the uh, sheep from the goats and do all this stuff. What's the difference between Jesus doing that and George Bush? And the difference is Jesus has all the information. He could tell what a just war, if there is such a thing, what a just war really is. The fact that uh, our politicians, soldiers and generals and all that, decide to go to war, it's for economic reasons, it's for societal reasons, it's for all these wrong reasons, and that we don't have all the information. And that's been shown over and over again in our history as a nation. So to me, there is no place for a just war doctrine in the church because we don't have all the information. Jesus says, and last time, you know, I, I haven't seen him write anything saying that we should go to war with Iran because it would be a just war. So what we should look at is what does the scriptures reveal to us about the character of Christ? Because it says all the fullness of the Godhead is embodied in the nature and character of Jesus. And is there anything in the gospel message that would lead itself to supporting a just war? And the answer is a resounding no. And you look through all the epistles from Peter, James, John, all the epistles. Is there anything in there that would lend itself to a just war? Answer resounding, no. So if we're going to be calling ourselves Christians, we need to look at the life of Christ, the example he set for us, and is there anything there that can support this idea? And the answer is no. Another thing that I see is a case where this Dr. Grudem wants to marry political to religious beliefs here. And this is kind of obvious in the next point, competent authority has the war been declared not simply by a renegade ban within a nation, but by a recognized competent authority within the nation? Then he quotes Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Unquote. And of course we can recall that you could have used that same argument or Hitler, that he was appointed by God, and so Christians should follow him. We know there were Christians like Dieter Bonhoeffer that paid with his life. He was a pastor for opposing uh, what Hitler was doing. In bringing up Romans 13, this chapter is the most commonly quoted uh, and, and is the, the only consistently quoted place where pastors trying to justify their own lust for war, or their own acceptance, their own political belief for war. Uh, it's the only real thing that they ever do fall back on that can be argued. And, uh, of course, it's all based upon the assumption that 
leaders are appointed by God. And they're talking about political leaders. I've written a story in which I held that, uh, and I think I would argue this strenuously, that this statement by uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans 13 flies in the face of everything else Paul said in all the rest of the chapter. And I suggested the possibility that he was writing satire. Because we all know that the leaders at the time of Paul were busy persecuting Paul. And that they were persecuting all of our Christian forefathers at the time. And to say that those people were all appointed by God, had their authority by God, and therefore should be obeyed, is exactly what Paul didn't do. He did not obey them. He continued to preach no matter what happened to him until he was actually killed by the same people. So the first few verses of Romans 13 are a mystery, and they even fly in the face of the last part of the chapter, and we'll give you a reference to the papers we've written about that, and we don't know if we have all the answers, but somehow this paragraph that you've read conflicts with all other writings and with his life, and there's got to be a good reason for that. It is, however, in the ancient scriptures that are found in the old manuscripts, so we don't contend that it was plugged in by war-making Christians. Uh, we just think that we don't understand it. Well, I think a lot that's in Romans 13 is just saying secular world rulers, they have authority, you know, and that the authority is there to help the society, it's to bring order, and, and so we should follow that and to bring order into society. So I'd like to quote from Acts chapter 5, and Peter in verse 29 says, that Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that, to me, needs to be the cornerstone of how we as Christians look at, look at authority. And if the authority is going beyond what's prescribed in the Scripture or in the character of Christ, that's our ob- obligation at that point, is to disobey that law. And so when man's laws conflict with God's laws, then we have to follow God. But if there's laws out there that don't contradict God's laws, we are to follow them. And I think the case can be made for Romans 13. It's saying, follow the laws. These laws are there. It's good for society. But if these laws get past the bounds that God gave them as far as the authority, then there's no responsibility of us to obey those laws. I believe that people who lived with Paul would understand what he was saying. And that they would understand that he was saying, we have to live with these people, pretend that they're the force of good, And let them think that, but don't forget that we have our duties. So my interpretation is that Paul was writing something politically correct here, but it wasn't uh, the way he lived his life. And I think the people that that knew Paul would know that. Okay, let's go on with this next point by Dr. Wayne Grudem. Comparative justice. It should be clear that the actions of the enemy are morally wrong and the motives and actions of one's own nation is going to war are in comparison, morally right. And then he quotes Romans 13.3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, remember, ladies and gentlemen, that this was written six, almost seven years after we started the second war in Iraq and had wreaked all kinds of havoc Innocent civilians were dying. Civil war was breaking out in Iraq, and it was just terrible. 
And then this kind of leads into uh, the next one here is right intention. The purpose of going to war is to protect justice and righteousness rather than simply to rob and pillage and destroy another nation. And he goes in the Old Testament here, the Proverbs 21.2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And so he's justifying all this destruction of Iraq as if it didn't really happen, if somehow we've liberated them. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. And hopefully people will forgive me for taking so long to wake up and leave the class, particularly after this revealing lesson. And, of course, most people in the uh, audience, there were probably 150 people, were pretty much in agreement. They, there was no uh, challenge to what he was saying. But then he goes on here, last resort, have all of the reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? And he quotes uh, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, we certainly didn't uh, look at that option very closely as, as an alternate to going to war. We were lied to about weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein did not have any. There were no connections with al-Qaeda. And so we see that even after we knew these kind of things, that in fact, Wayne Grudem even uh, says here in another lesson, no WMDs found, but had been used against Kurds in the past. U.S. intelligence and others believed in the existence of. Well, that was all disproven afterwards that there were none. And so here, even with some evidence, he can't even let go of this notion of a, of a just war. And probability of success is his next one. Well, with the largest army in the world, somehow the success look pretty good, but we've seen now with over 15 years in Afghanistan and now going 14 years in Iraq, we haven't done so well. We haven't really won anything. There, there isn't any democracy over there. And so this is kind of a flavor for what kind of things that are coming out of the evangelical churches. And it's amazing that people are accepting this, but we've been sold a notion that we have this exceptionalism, and that came out in that last point there, where, where we're somehow much better, and so we're morally justified in, in these kinds of actions, and so we should be repenting for our sins and the suffering that we're causing and the blowback in the Middle East. It was also interesting in one of his lessons uh, he went into the different pacifists and so forth, and he had, uh, was of interest to me, he made a, a comment about non-interventionists, and uh, according to Ron Paul, and here is what he says, Paul says foreign interventionism is of no benefit to American citizens, but instead is a threat to our liberties. He opposes all foreign aid, including aid to Israel, opposes U.S. military bases, such as Korea, Japan, Europe. Paul on 911 attack. They attack us because we have been over there. We have been bombing Iraq for 10 years. And so we had the first Gulf War in 1991, and then the Afghan War, Iraq, Libya. We've created a disaster there. Now Syria, and this is what Ron Paul has referred to as blowback. So 
we don't seem, at least some of these evangelicals can't seem to learn the obvious lessons. There should be enough time for people to wake up, but this really shows how people can be deceived by their religious theology. It's uh, quite amazing. Yeah, Tom, that's exactly what I was saying before. We don't have all the information, and often the truth is, is so obfuscated that it, it doesn't come out until years later. And then the historians point out that this was all uh, crock of baloney, the way these people went to war. Something else we haven't touched at all is the whole false flag operation, where our own government or somebody's own government perpetrates a, an attack on their own citizens to foment this war sentiment to start going. And there's definitely documented cases of that through history. So there's, there's all kinds of things. So, again, we don't have all the information when we're going to go to these wars. Obviously, if some guy is, is, is breaking your door down with a gun to your head, that is a clear and present danger that you need to deal with. But so many of these situations are, are just fabricated, and they're the base guys, I hate to use the word, but the powers that be find useful idiots to accomplish their task. We should remember the circumstances under which Paul and Jesus himself lived. They lived in an occupied country. Every phase of what went on in then Jerusalem and the territory called Palestine at that time by the Romans, the Romans named it because they occupied it. They had stationed men right there. In one case, soldier listened to Paul and he believed him. He believed his story about Jesus and he said, what shall we soldiers be doing then? Question mark. And Paul's answer, intimidate no one, neither blackmail, but be satisfied with your own rations. So what he told the soldier is, stop stealing from the people. You're paid to be here. If you want to be like us, then be satisfied with what you're given by the military to do your job. The people who started Christianity understood war. Occupation is the ultimate end of war. It is the, what, what happens at the end of war. So, so they were conscious of this, and they knew how to act around war. In the scriptures, it does not talk about revolt against the order, or it doesn't talk about revolution, and it doesn't talk about taking up arms. It talks about living one's life following Jesus. And somehow our leaders who then somehow say they can go back and read scripture written by Paul, the apostles, and that they can from this justify going into the Middle East and destroying the entire Middle East and still continuing to do it without any reservation are ignoring their scripture. And Mr. Grudem, who was lecturing you, has given ample evidence, Tom, that he manufactured the scripture he needed to justify his position. Absolutely. And I don't pretend to be a great intellect on the order of a Dr. Wayne Grudem, but in 2003, we had a vigil in front of my church, actually, uh, before the war started, uh, about a month before. And I wrote a little parable about it, and here's what I said in 2003. Quote, today everyone has been told thousands of times by the media and our government that Saddam Hussein and the Muslims are the enemy. In fact, Saddam Hussein has been declared a modern-day Hitler. All the more reason to get rid of him, we are told. 
don't think about the million Christians in Iraq and the remaining millions of innocent Iraqi civilians who will be in harm's way if the U.S. starts a war there. Also, disregard the fact that in the 1980s, the United States was supplying war materials and training to Saddam Hussein and his Iraqi army in, in their war against Iran. Maybe if the U.S. hadn't taken sides then, the Iranians might have neutralized Saddam Hussein. That way the United States would have to create another enemy. And that's, unquote, and that's so true. Uh, our meddling has uh, overthrown governments, including the government of Iran, in 1953. I want to read to you from the 10th chapter of Second Corinthians, what I did is I went to my Greek Bible and I looked up war. And there are not too many references to war in the Greek text. But uh, this one I thought kind of spells it out pretty well. The way people lived at that time, the way Jesus and the apostles thought. And I'm going to read it to you not from the Greek text, but I'm going to read it from the Life Application Bible, this is called. You can read it from any Bible and you get pretty much the same reading. It is the same reading as the original Greek that I have. And Paul is saying, I plead with you. Yes, I, Paul, and I plead guilty, as Christ himself would do. Yet some of you are saying, Paul, your letters are, are bold enough when he is far away, but when he gets here, he will be afraid to raise his voice. I hope I won't need to show you when I come how harsh and rough I can be. I don't want to carry out my present plans against some of you who seem to think my deeds and words are merely those of an ordinary man. And I guess maybe this is the part we should probably include. It is true that I am an ordinary, weak human being, but I don't use human plans and methods to win my battle. I use God's mighty weapon, not those by men who knock down the devil's strongholds. These weapons can break down very proud arguments against God and every wall that can be built to keep men from finding him. With these weapons, I can capture rebels and bring them back to God and change them into men whose heart's desire is to be obedient to Christ. I will use these weapons against every rebel who remains after I have first used them on you yourselves and you surrender to Christ." So this is the kind of war that Paul and the apostles talked about. It was the battle to bring men to Christ. It was not the kind of war that Mr. Grudem and the other Southern Baptists like Richard Land, who we started out talking about, it was not the kind of war that they talk about where they're going to go in and declare that they are right and have righteousness on their side and destroy other men and their families and children in order to bring about the result that they think they want. That's a very good, Chuck, because it, you know, it says clearly our battle is not against flesh and blood. And if our battle is not against flesh and blood, there's no just war in that. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but in the powers and the principalities of and in the heavenly places. That's exactly right. That's where the war has to be raised. And I, I heard recently this, this phrase, and I thought was really good. Do you read what you believe? Or do you believe what you read? And so many times you know, we, we see it, and I'm sure we do it ourselves. We're reading scripture, and we're reading what we already believe. 
instead of reading the scriptures and saying, what is God saying? What is really saying here? And what we have is a, in represented in Christ is we have someone who says, blessed are the peacemakers and that we, we use over and over again. If your enemy persecutes you, pray for them, go the extra mile. All those things represent the, the Christian message. And yet people read the Bible to pull out what they already believe instead of the other way around. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen, and choose life, not war. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.